Hi, everybody. This is Bob Bro. Welcome to the Best Old Time Radio Podcast. This week, we're doing an archive show that was originally broadcast back on the 5th of January in 2015. Hope you enjoy it. It's half past eight exactly, Mr. Dillon. I better get it out of the safe now. Greetings and salutations, y'all. Are you all cold? Is it cold where you are? Are you tired of football? Yeah? Are you glad to be back to work? Isn't it wonderful working in January? This is Bob Bro. Welcome to Boomer Boulevard. We are expecting on Wednesday a high of 13 degrees and a low of 4 degrees. Boy, I can't tell you how much I'm looking forward to next Wednesday. Man, that's my kind of day. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, anyway, uh, I'm all kind of, like I said, full of football. And I guess if you're a football fan, January is your month. Kind of nice sitting here in my cold living room watching the Rose Bowl game from Pasadena where it's 70 degrees and the sky is blue and the mountains are in the background and it's clear. Used to live there, you know, Southern California, that was home. And uh, I am always reminded of that come winter time. But nonetheless, we're in good spirits and we're glad to have you aboard. Do we have a good show tonight, you're wondering? Well, I'm going to answer you and say yes, we have a very good show tonight. We have, once again, an Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Yay! And we have an Adventures of Jack Benny. Not the Adventures of Jack Benny. We have an episode of the Jack Benny Show. And it's a funny one. And it involves Fred Allen, which is always good. Ronald Coleman's my favorite, but Fred Allen's right up there, boy. (laughs) Jack Benny and Fred Allen were funny, funny. And then finally, we're going to finish things up with an episode of Gunsmoke that is a tragedy. 
Not a funny gun smoke tonight, a tragedy gun smoke tonight. So we got funny with Jack Benny and tragedy with gun smoke. And that's our lineup. And yes, we're going to get started in just a minute. So grab a seat, grab something to eat or drink or whatever, because you're going to be glued there for the next two hours. everybody, our first program tonight comes to you in glorious black and white with lots of shadows. It's Radio Noir and it's Philip Marlowe, who we have not visited in a while, so I'm glad to have Philip Marlowe back on our, on our agenda tonight. This was a tale first told on January the 28th, 1950 on CBS, and the name of it is The Hairpin Turn. So let's join Gerald Moore as Philip Marlowe and see what's cooking in the streets of Los Angeles. Get this and get it straight. Crime is a sucker's road and those who travel it wind up in the gut of the prison of the grave. This time a fireball too handy with a target pistol led me down a rocky road past a sleazy money grubber to a curly-headed corpse. And it might have gotten worse if I hadn't slowed down at the hairpin turn. It happened like this. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character in The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. Now, with Gerald Moore starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story... The Hairpin Turn. Hey, stop it. Put down that gun and listen to me. Stay back, Uncle Enoch. How do you like that? Well, if you could think just half as straight as you could shoot, I'd have nothing to worry about, but you can't. And it's high time you realized... Oh, there's the house buzzer. Somebody's up at the house, Uncle Enoch. And this is Miles Nidal. Well, all right, I'll answer it. I'm expecting a man from the office. But as soon as I finish with him, you and I are going to have a talk, young lady. Do you understand? I said... Oh, what's the use? Yes? 
Uh, I'm Philip Marlowe to see Mr. Vanneman, Enoch Vanneman. I, I have an appointment. Oh, come in, Marlowe. I'm Enoch Vanneman. Oh. Glad you're here. Step this way, will you? We'll talk in the study. Okay, Mr. Vanneman. I, uh, why, I thought... Uh, those, uh, those were pistol shots? Yeah, that's, uh, Kay, my niece. Sounds like a squad of Marines. Yeah, she's a champion pistol shot. She's converted one of the garages into a target range. Well, I seem to recall a city ordinance that yeah, says... I know all be... about that ordinance, Mr. Marlowe. Save your breath. Oh, just like that, huh? Precisely. Mm. Sit down, please. Thanks. Breaking a city ordinance is a perfect example of all the crackpot things that headstrong young fool insists on getting mixed up in. And you want me to get mixed up with the crackpot, huh? Yes, yeah, she has no more sense in her choice of male companions than she does in her hobbies. And she's a very rich girl. Now, look, if this is a bodyguarding assignment, Mr. Vanneman, I now, want to uh, tell Kay you... Kay has been going with a man named Cliff Lace, an unsavory type at least. Professional horse player, I think, and it was quite an affair. Was quite an affair? That's right. She threw Lace over for a new love recently. Fellow I've never met. Mm. She's serious, but refuses to tell me anything about him. So? So Cliff Lace doesn't like the idea because, from his standpoint, a very good thing has slipped through his fingers. Oh. He's going to do something about it, huh? And I don't know. But since about the time they broke up, a man's been snooping around the grounds here, Marlowe. Really? He's about 40, uh, short, greasy-looking. He has a flabby kind of face with fat lips and there was a large black mole on the right side of his nose. Hey, I may know that character, Mr. Vanneman. I'll have to check to be sure. Marlowe, I want to know who he is and why he's been hanging around here. Also, I want to find out all there is to know about Kay's new man. Mm. Tell me, uh, how old is Kay, Mr. Vanneman? She's 26. That's her picture there. Oh, oh yeah. Blonde fireball. <laughs> Look, uh, Mr. Vanneman, if she's 26, maybe her love life is none of your business. It is my business. I'm her guardian, and I'm very fond of her. But she's reckless, stubborn, and erratic. Yeah, well, money's great, but it'll never replace the old-fashioned parent. Well, it's also a big responsibility, you know. No, not firsthand, I well, don't. It leaves one open to every crooked scheme in the book. Yeah, look, Marlowe, I've written my personal phone number on this card. You can reach me there privately at any time. All right, Mr. Vanneman, I'll see what I can find out. I got in my car and I crossed the two acres of tailored flora the Vanamans called Front Yard. I could see in back the squat, windowless brick building topped by a skylight that housed the target range. Then a minute later, I drove out through the big Bel Air gate into Sunset Boulevard just as Kay Vanaman streaked past me in a sleek new Nash. I was sure I knew already who the snoopy little man who'd been hanging around was. The description of flabby face, fat lips, and mole fit tight on a guy named Mutt Pomeroy had somehow been issued a private detective's license and somehow managed to keep it. He was just about as ethical as a stab in the back. I remembered he had an office in a fire trap on Bronson, so I made that my first stop. Climbed a flight of dark, smelly stairs to a tired door marked Pomeroy, Private Investigations. Well, there was no answer, so I tried the door. Somebody beside Mutt had been there ahead of me. Turned the place inside out. It was a shambles. I spent five minutes going over his files, scattered like leaves in November, and was still at it when the door behind me swung shut. Lose something, chum? Hello, Mutt. What's the big idea tearing up my joint, Marlowe? Hey, hey, you know better than that. I wouldn't touch the stuff you keep on file without rubber gloves. <laughs> Real funny. If you didn't do this, then who did? I came in and found it just like this. One of your clients must have gotten a little careless. You're full of them tonight, aren't you? Yeah. What do you want here, Marlowe? I need a little help, Mutt. No kidding. Mm. 
Okay, chum, sit down. Glad to help out a brother sleuth any time at all. Now, what's your problem? Why are you so interested in the Vanneman place? Oh, the Vanneman place. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> Quite a chunk of real estate they got there. I know. What's the fascination? A little simple investigation for a simple little lady. For purposes of conversation, what'll we call her? Mm. How does Estelle suit you? Estelle. Look, Marlo, you got in free. Take the scraps and be happy. Okay. But as you put it, the Vannemans own quite a chunk of real estate. We might subdivide. You might like to tell me how this Estelle ties in. Yeah? Yeah, I might at that, chum. She's worried about a guy. And from what I've seen of that jet-propelled blonde named Kay Vanneman, she's got plenty of reason to worry. Guy's name wouldn't be Cliff Lace, would it? Cliff Lace? Mm-hmm. Oh. I don't remember, Marlowe. Okay, Mud, how much is it going to take? Well, now, that's hard to say. I'll have to let you know. You see, I've got an angle on my end, too. My uh, little client swears up and down there's no other woman involved. But, you know, the Estelles are always the last to know. You're beginning to smell, Pomeroy. And just how do you fit, Marlowe? I'm helping a guy worry about a girl. Well, that's real nice. And when your clients worry, the wrinkles make dollar signs, so you're always right, is that it? Thanks for everything. I'll see you around, Mutt. Yeah, but don't go away mad, chum. Oh, of course not. That's why I'm leaving now. It took a friend at the phone company all of ten minutes to locate Cliff Lace's address for me, which turned out to be a snug bachelor's nest bungalow style at the foot of the Hollywood Hills, numbered 4300 Cherimoya. I parked, started for the front door, and on the way past an open window where the silhouette of a man at a telephone was cut into neat slices by a Venetian blind. Oh, but you better want But his voice came right through here. in one piece yeah. and you couldn't miss it. You see, Estelle, I know almost all about you. Oh, yeah, yeah. I got your name earlier tonight from a mutual friend, Mr. Mutt Pomeroy. Yeah. I think it's about time we got together for a little business conference, huh? Now, right there at the plaza in, say, two hours... You'll still be registered as Ruth Bridges. Good. Goodbye, Estelle. When he hung up, he moved over to a bottle of Johnny Walker scotch. I waited until he'd helped himself, and then I went to the door. Yeah. My name's Marlowe, Mr. Lace. I'd like to talk to you. What about? Whatever it was you were looking for when you ransacked Mutt Pomeroy's office tonight. Do I come in? Yeah. Yeah, of course. Thanks. But I'm afraid I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, come on. We both know that's a lie. Let's forget it and go on from there, huh? Just a minute. You a cop? No. But I'll call him at the drop of a hat. Make it easy on yourself. What's Mutt Pomeroy to you? Bag of worms. I want to know who he's working for. The fact that you had to break into his place to get information should let you out. So who is it? What makes you think I'd know? Because you found what you were looking for. What's Estelle's last name, Cliff? <laughs> you do get around, don't you, Bright Boy? Yeah, yeah, I do. Only sometimes not fast enough. Look, Buster, why not chance at the door? Somebody's got his finger caught in the buzzer. Yeah, that's right. Kay, I told you I didn't... I stopped by to deliver something, Cliff, an ultimatum. I'm telling you for the last hold time... Hold it, hold it, will you? We're not alone. I don't care what I have to say to you. I'll shout from the rooftops. We're through, washed up. Now get out of my life and stay out. Okay, please. Good evening, Miss Vanneman. I don't know you, Slim, but keep out of this. Look, look, Donnie, don't... Now you listen. I'm in love with Boyce Neely, really in love this time. I intend to marry him, and I won't have you... Marry Boyce Neely? 
<laughs> Don't be ridiculous. Cliff, I'm warning you. Look, you'll get this. You'll never marry boys, Neely. That's one thing I'm sure of. I know a lot more about them than you do, darling. Believe me, when the time is just right, you're going to hear from me again, but loud. Why, you filthy. If you try to do anything to hurt Boyce and me, Cliff Lacer, help me, I'll kill you. I mean it. <laughs> Sometimes she's going to throw that temper at me just once too often. Who are you kidding, Lace? Ever see her use a target pistol? Ah, oh, she's too smart to trump her own ace. Don't count on it, mister. No, I'm not worried. Uh, where were we, Marlo? We were looking for some answers, which I just got. Good night, Lace. Keep your head down. The way things were breaking, I was sure if I didn't get to the woman named Estelle before Lace did, I wasn't going to get anywhere. So I spent the next hour folded up in a phone booth running down the list of respectable and semi-so hotels with the word plaza either for or aft. Finally, a flute-voiced night clerk in a mid-Victorian number called the Royce Plaza confessed that they had a Ruth Bridges, which was the name that I'd heard Lace mention. She was registered from Santa Monica, but at the moment out, I was convinced that she was really Estelle, Mutt Pomeroy's client. So I drove over to the hotel, invested five bucks with a night clerk, picked up a newspaper, and waited. Halfway down the sports page, a prim brunette came in who would have been pretty without the overload of nervous strain stamped on her face. As she crossed the deserted lobby, the clerk gave me a nod, so I called her name, caught up with her at the foot of the stairs. You... you called me? Yeah, if you could spare me a minute, Miss Bridges, I'd like to talk to you. What do you want? Well, my name's Marlowe. I'm a private detective. A, a, a private detective? Yeah, look, honey, let's move over into the corner. You know, that boy on the desk is going to sprain his neck if we don't. But what do you want with me? Well, suppose we start off with your real name, Estelle. What's the rest of it? Neely, maybe, huh? How did you know that? It's taken me all evening to get it. That's the only way it figures. It's right, isn't it? You're married to Boyce Neely? Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm Mrs. Boyce Neely, but... What business is that of yours? Well, that's what I'm trying to find out. You hired Mutt Pomeroy to check on your husband because you're worried about him, right? Why? Boyce is in trouble. He, well, he's in a jam, that's all. Is it money? No. Boyce does very well. He's in real estate in Santa Monica. Oh, maybe with the law, huh? Yes. Yes, I'm afraid so. He, he's been acting so strange. He, he wouldn't talk to me or anything. I just had to find out what was wrong. I see well, look, what's your connection with Cliff Lace? Why, I, I don't know any Cliff Lace. Oh, come on, baby. Take it a little easy and try again. Cliff Lace, I know you called him tonight, and he called you. All right. He... He wanted to talk to me about... about Boyce and... and some girl named Kay Vanneman, but... he's crazy, I know he is. Boyce is not mixed up with another woman he couldn't be. I hope I meet your husband soon, Mrs. Neely. I'd like to punch him in the nose. What do you mean? But Pomeroy was right. The Estelles are always the last to know. Look, do me a favor. Will you go up to your room, go to bed, and get some sleep? You're going to need it. All right. Thank you, Mr. Marlowe. Hmm. Hey, uh, Buster, where's the phone? Oh, right over there, sir. Good book? Uh-huh. Huh? Oh, yeah, yeah, great. Chandler's new one, you know. Chandler. Chandler. <laughs> Where have I heard that name before? Hello? Enoch Vanneman? Marlowe, Mr. Vanneman. Kay there? No, she's not, Marlowe. Uh -huh. And listen, 
I want you to forget whatever else you're doing and find her immediately. Well, what's the matter? She left here about 15 minutes ago in a fury. Where was she going? Well, I don't know for sure. She left shortly after you did tonight. Then she came back about an hour I ago. I know, and... I know. I ran into her. What happened this time? She got a phone call from Cliff Lace. Something was said about him now being in the driver's seat, whatever that means. She was furious. That's not good, Vanneman. Believe me. Well, it's worse than you think. You've got to stop her. Because when she left here, Marlowe, I'm quite sure she had her target pistol with her. I hung up the phone, ran out to my car, and headed back to Cliff Lace's bungalow on Cheramoya. But Kay had a 15-minute head start, and at that hour, in her frame of mind, the drive in from Bel Air was a hop, skip, and a jump. The only hope was in Lace himself being smart enough to know that he'd overplayed his hand. The street was deserted when I pulled in and parked down the hill from the place. When I got to the front door and found it unlocked, I eased it open and went in. The living room was dark, but there was a light on in the bedroom, and I started for it. Before I saw the bulk of a figure leaning against the dark side of the frame. Come on in, chum. Make yourself at home. What are you doing here, Mutt? Easy, Marlowe. There's no hurry. Not now, there's not. School's out, chum. Where's Lace? Inside. It was nice, clean, accurate, and exactly dead center. He never knew what hit him. small, neat hole front and center in his forehead said that Cliff Lace had been shot to death. And everything from jealous motive to target pistol method pointed directly to Kay Vanneman. But that was still a long way from proof, and there was Mutt Pomeroy on hand. The kind who always figured only one way. To the right of the dollar sign. Now, let's not jump to any dumb conclusions, Marlowe. Like what? Like the look on your kisser that wants to know what I'm doing here. That I can explain. I got Cliff Lace's name from you, and a sawbuck to the right guy gave me a rundown on him, a sort of a character analysis, you might say. So? So I figured he was the guy who frisked my office to find out who I was working for. He must have tagged me out of the Vanneman place, followed me down to my joint, then turned everything inside out until he ran across something that added for him. Something like the name is Tell Neely, maybe? <laughs> you move fast, don't you, Marlowe? Yeah, when there isn't too much crowding. I've got most of it already, Pomeroy, so Spill? Spill? I don't know what you mean, Marlowe. I mean that Estelle Neely hired you to find out why her husband was worried. You come up with an answer, all right. It was called Other Woman. So? Estelle didn't even suspect anything about another woman. And you didn't tell her what you found out because it was Kay Vanneman, a gal with a million bucks, right or wrong. Suppose you're right, Marlowe. What are you getting at? A possibility that you could have done this. Kill Lace? Why? Because Lace was playing the same game that you are, chum, blackmail. Your motive was money and so was his. Plus the fact that he didn't like Kay giving him his walking papers. So when he wouldn't come to terms with me, I killed him, is that it? Yeah, it could be. Can you prove otherwise? <laughs> no, I can't. But other things can, Marlowe. Things, yeah. Like that lipstick-smeared cigarette in the ashtray behind you. It's, it's not my brand. And I don't drop hairpins on the carpet when I kill. Do I go on? Or were you just trying it for size because you hate to think that a gorgeous item like young money bags could be it? <laughs> Right or wrong, Marlowe? You know, leveling with you, Pomeroy, takes the kind of talent that can cash a $7 bill at a bank. Who are you calling, Marlowe? The cops. It's the custom. Wait, wait. Look, don't be a sap. What'll that get you? A killer, maybe. Yeah, and from there on, a pat on the head. A well done from the law. Get smart, chum. Shielding a murderer is a lot healthier for the bank account than nailing one every time. Get your hand off the phone, Pomeroy. Now, Marlowe, listen Get it off! Okay, go on. Louse it up, boy scout. Who knows, maybe some bright day you might even run for Alderman, Marlowe. Without your votes, I'm sure. 
Homicide, Sergeant Becker. Phil Marlowe, Sarge. There's a DOA waiting for you. 4300 Cherimoya. Name's Cliff Lace. Occupation questionable. He was shot. Any idea who did it, Marlowe? Yeah. Poor little rich girl named Kay Vanneman or her sweetheart, one Mr. Boyce Neely. Who lives in Santa Monica? Yeah. Where's the fit? I don't know. How long ago was this Lace killed, Marlowe? 30, 40 minutes? Why? Neely's clear. We picked him up at his own home better than two hours ago. He's in a pokey now. What'd you get him on? Hit and run, a month ago. It's alleged that he knocked an old lady out of a crosswalk and into a hospital without even stopping to watch her bounce. Some anonymous tipster phoned the dope in around six tonight. Said the repaint job on Neely's car would prove it. It did. So that just leaves this venom babe, huh? Yeah, I guess so. But you know, Becker, hey, there's... Hey, Come here, Crick. Out in the backyard there. It's Cave Hanneman. I'll call you later, Becker. We got company. Get the lights, Pomeroy, and stay down. Don't worry, Marlowe. The driveway alongside the house is the only way out. All right, watch it from the front. I'll go through the kitchen and out the back door. Play it close. Check. But remember, Pomeroy, nobody gets trigger happy. Don't worry, chum. Kay! Come on, baby, you're cornered back there. Talk up. Who's that? Philip Marlowe, the guy you saw here with Cliff Lace earlier tonight. I'm also a private detective who's working for your uncle and trying to keep you out of trouble. Now, let's have the target pistol, baby. Come on, throw it in. I can't. I don't have one. Uncle Enoch says different. He told me you left the house with it. I told you I don't have one. All right, come on out. But slowly, hands high, no jokes. I always lose my sense of humor right after murder. After... Yeah, yeah. Lace was shot to death. Never mind the carefully arched eyebrows. You're in too deep, honey. You don't think I had anything to do with Cliff Lace getting killed, do you? Oh, no, no. It's all one great big coincidence, huh? Why don't you leave, Miss Vanneman? I... I said, why don't you leave? Well, I... How about it, Mr. Marlowe? Go ahead. I won't try to stop you. If you're guilty, you won't get very far. Well, all right. All right, Pomeroy, what's on your mind? A partnership, chum. Based on what, chum? Based on the fact that I saw you kill Cliff Lace. Fat! You what? Yeah. I saw you standing over the body with a smoking gun. Come on, come on. You don't think you can really make that stick, do you? No, but it would keep you busy explaining for a while, long enough for me to wind up my business. Oh. Mm-hmm. Well, Marlowe, what'll it be? You and me as partners doing business with old Enoch Vanneman on behalf of the niece I'm sure he'll want to protect, or me in business for myself. Well, which? It'll be partners, Pomeroy. <laughs> okay, chum. Let's get inside and clean up. Mm. The lady was kind of careless around the edges. Hey, hey, the split. Hmm? How far does it go? 50-50. Fair enough? Fair enough. <clears throat> After you, Phil. Now, get that cigarette butt and the hairpin on the copper there. Then tell Sergeant Becker that you were jumping the gun about the Vanderman girl because you just found out that she was at home all night. I'll check the rest of it. Okay, Mutt. First the cigarette butt, then the hairpin. Hey. What is it, Marlowe? Watch with the hairpin. Why'd you say... Marlowe, quick, get the light. Someone's out front. Don't shoot it. Maybe the law. In skirts? Look, get in that car over there. It's a babe, and five will get you ten that she answers the name okay. Oh, that jerk's going to be a Lulu to protect. Yeah. Well, we better go in. Hey, and... 
The hairpin you dropped into your pocket, Marlowe. What's so special about it? Oh, nothing. If it was just a hunch I had, forget it. Marlowe, I want to see it. Okay. Here. Get a good look! <clears throat> Partner... Fast 20-minute drive back out to Bel Air and the Bannerman place. All the way, I worried hard that the hunch I was playing was right and that I was going to be too late to do anything about it. When I was there, parked halfway up the pebble driveway out of my car and running toward the fluorescent light and the sound of a woman's voice that filtered through the heavy iron mesh over an air vent in the windowless target range, I slowed to a walk, switched the 45 from pocket to right hand, and then I moved up to where I could both see and hear. Kay Vanneman was huddled in a far corner, her eyes crowded with fear and riveted on the dainty but lethal twenty-two automatic that Cliff Lace's murderer pointed straight at her head. Estelle Neely had her back to me, but with the grill that was designed to stop bullets between us, there was nothing I could do. You've got to listen to me. Please listen before you do anything crazy. I swear, I, I, I never knew that Boyce was married. I'd, I'd never have gone with him if I'd known. You're a liar. No, it's the truth, I tell you. It started like the others, fun and no questions asked, but then... I fell in love, and it never occurred to me that he might have been married. Stop it! I don't want to hear anymore. I've already killed once for Boyce, the guy I turned into the police for something he did a month ago. You turned your own husband over... I did that so they'd put him away out of your reach. You'd never wait for him. You'd go your own merry, merry way a week after he was in jail. Boyce would be glad to come back to me after five years of living in a cage like an animal. And he'd never suspect that I was the one who informed. I hired a private detective, Mutt Pongo. And made sure that he knew I never even suspected that Boyce could have anything to do with another woman. Then Boyce would never realize it was you who turned him in. Because you had no motive. But Pomroy would be your witness to that. I killed Cliff Lace because he traced me from Pomroy. And then found out that I was the one who told the police about Boyce. He would have blackmailed me forever. And I'm not sorry. Nor will I be when I kill you. Now sit down, Miss Vanneman. And listen carefully. I couldn't shoot, and I knew that it would be disastrous to yell, but I had to do something in a hurry. I moved up quietly to the door. It was locked. That only left one chance, the skylight on the roof. The building was low, and a lawn chair nearby was all the help I needed. <clears throat> when I was up and over to the skylight, there was glass and no mesh underneath. I still hadn't made it, because from that angle I could see Kay, but only hear Estelle. Oh, now you know just what kind of a woman is going to kill you. But why me? I told you... I don't care what you told me! It was you, young and beautiful, that started all this. All this that's almost over now because the other detective, that Marlowe, knows that I killed Lace. He found a hairpin there. I saw him from the window. I saw him pick up the hairpin, Miss Van. No, stay back. The black hairpin that couldn't possibly belong to a blonde like you. The hairpin that said Marlowe knows that I killed Lace. So I'm through, and I know it. But before they get me, I... <laughs> my, my hand, it... <laughs> Is she dead? No, just out. Well, fireball, any appropriate wisecracks? Wisecrack? Uh, not for quite a while, Marlowe. I'm too scared.
Well, it was the usual hour and a half of questions and answers with client, followed by the same questions and answers with police before I finally closed the door on Enoch Vanneman's marble halls and started down past the manicured shrubbery to where I'd left my car. Outside, the night was cold and clear. As I walked, I looked up at the vastness overhead and wondered. Wondered why I had the kind of job that made me no more than houseboy with gun for a rich guy with a badly spoiled niece. But I stopped wondering when I was at my car and no longer alone. I just wanted to say thanks before you left, Phil. I, I would do my best to stay out of trouble from here on out. You know why? No, why? Because I want to be good enough for the right guy who may come along someday. A guy like you, I mean. Oh? Thanks, Phil. <sighs> I'm very grateful. Yes, well, <clears throat> my job's all right nine times out of ten. The Adventures of Philip Marlowe, bringing you Raymond Chandler's most famous character, star Gerald Moore are produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and are written for radio by Robert Mitchell and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were G.B. Hunter, Jay Novello, Olive Deering, Ralph Moody, Tony Barrett, and Charles Russell. The special music is composed and conducted by Richard Arant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... It happened in a place called Bay City where I was unwelcome to a fat fry cook with a secret and a dapper gambler who smoked oversized cigarettes. But where to the long arm of the law? I was poison. Philip Marlowe has a new night, ladies and gentlemen. Tuesdays. Yes, starting February 7th, The Adventures of Philip Marlowe will be heard every Tuesday night at 9.30 Eastern Standard Time. Be sure and listen. Remember, Tuesday night, Marlowe night. And one week from tonight, at this time, you'll find one of your favorite radio families, the Goldbergs. Yes, Molly, Jake, Sammy, Rosie, and all their friends are moving from Friday nights on CBS to Saturdays, starting next Saturday. This is Roy Rowan speaking. Stay tuned now for Gangbusters, which follows on most of these same CBS stations. This is CBS where the Goldbergs and Arthur Godfrey's Digest will now be heard every Saturday night, the Columbia Broadcasting System. From January 28, 1950, the hairpin turn on the adventures of Philip Marlowe. Hey, do you know how many people have played Philip Marlowe? Now, I'm not talking about just on radio, but how about in the movies and on television? I'm taking this from a very interesting article about the Philip Marlowe show, the radio show, on the website digitaldeli.com, which is a very informative site. These are some of the people that played Philip Marlowe. Humphrey Bogart, of course, Dick Powell, Van Heflin, George Montgomery, Robert Montgomery, Robert Mitchum, Gerald Moore, William Conrad, James Garner, 
James Kahn, Elliot Gould, Philip Carey, Powers Booth, Danny Glover, and most recently, I guess, was Clive Owen. Quite a list. lost some entertainment figures over the last two weeks since the last time we visited on Boomer Boulevard. And I just thought I might mention some of these and say goodbye. Donna Douglas, who played Ellie Mae on uh, the Beverly Hillbillies for many years, died on January 2nd, according to her niece. She died in Baton Rouge. Says the role of Ellie Mae was not a stretch for Donna Douglas, who was born way out in the country outside Baton Rouge, Louisiana. She said she really was a country girl, and as she grew up, her folks were real poor. Donna won a beauty contest in her home state of uh, Louisiana, then headed off to New York in the mid-50s looking for modeling jobs, and she wound up on television as a billboard girl on the old Steve Allen show. Then she took acting lessons and landed a few parts and a few different TV series before writer and producer Paul Henning asked her if she thought she could handle the role of Ellie Mae for the Beverly Hillbillies. She just looked at him and grinned. She said, could I handle Ellie Mae? Why, I was Ellie Mae. I was playing my own life. Edward Herman, very well-known actor, died on New Year's Eve, according to his son, Edward Herman was born in 1943, who became familiar across a spectrum of popular entertainment from movies, Broadway, and television. He also read audiobooks. Over six feet tall, broad-shouldered, uh, Edward Herman could play the authoritative figure or he could play the Harvey Milk Toast. He was quite a presence. More often than not, his roles called for him to wear a tuxedo. Buddy's characters could be either comic or dramatic, and oftentimes he played a stuffed shirt. Other times he played genuinely commanding men. Edward Herman, yeah, I liked him a lot. Uh, a couple of my favorite roles, I liked him in Overboard, remember with Goldie Hawn? And uh, let's see, he was in uh, The Purple Rose of Cairo, the Woody Allen film. He was in Richie Rich. He played Richie's uh, father, Mr. Rich. <laughs> Again, a millionaire. He played in the Emperor's Club. He played the headmaster. Edward Herman, yeah. Liked him an awful lot as an actor. And finally, um, Joe Cocker left us this, uh, this past week. Joe Cocker was born in May of 1944, and he died on uh, December 22nd. Known for his gritty voice, Cocker, who was a former gasoline station attendant, began his singing career in the pubs and clubs in England in the 1960s before he finally hit it big time. He was propelled to pop stardom when uh, his version of With a Little Help from My Friends reached number one in 1968. And he did a very famous uh, performance of that song at Woodstock just a year later. 
He was also well known for his Mad Dog and Englishman tour of 1970, which visited 48 cities across the U.S. His duet with Jennifer Warren's Up Where We Belong from An Officer and a Gentleman hit number one and went on to win both a Grammy and an Academy Award. And, of course, his other uh, well-known song that was such a big, big hit was uh, You Are So Beautiful. Just a classic, classic song in the 70s. So to these three entertainers that meant so much to us over the years, we say a sad and fond farewell.
Well, all right. Let's uh, let's change the mood a little bit. I think it's time for a little comedy. <laughs> Something familiar. Something peculiar. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Ah! Something appealing. Something appalling. Something for everyone. A comedy tonight. Nothing with kings. Nothing with crowns. Bring on the lovers, liars, and clowns. Situation, no complications. Nothing portentous or polite. Ready tomorrow, coming tonight. <laughs> All right, everybody, let's let's have a good laugh. What do you say? We're going to go back to 1950, January 15th to be exact. To listen to a Jack Benny show, and this one has a lot of funny bits in it. It's how Jack and Fred Allen met. The Jack Benny Program, presented by Lucky Strike. Six The Lucky Strike Program, starring Jack Benny, with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, and yours truly, Don Wilson. And now, ladies and gentlemen, let's go back a few hours. It's just before our regular Sunday rehearsal, and Jack is in his dressing room waiting for his guest star to appear. Oh, Rochester, has Fred Allen arrived yet? No, sir. Uh, Say, boss, Mr. Allen has been off the air for a long time, hasn't he? Yes, yes, he has. Well, you and he never did get along. How come you're having him on your program? Well, Rochester, I'll admit it took me a long time to make up my mind. I didn't feel sorry for Mr. Allen when he lost his job. And I wasn't particularly upset when he was evicted from his house. (laughs) But last week, when I saw him standing on the corner of Sunset and Doheny, selling maps to movie stars' homes, (laughs) I wept. (laughs) He looked awful standing out there selling those maps. His suit was so ragged, it looked like he bought it one flight up and then fell down the stairs. (laughs) No kidding, boss. Does he really look that bad? Rochester, you won't believe this, but Alan is so weak that he's talking through his mouth now. (laughs) He hasn't the strength to push the words up through his nose. (laughs) Oh, it's pathetic. Pathetic. Well, then, under the circumstance, I suppose you're going to give him a very generous check. Well, a man should never let his sympathies override his good judgment in business. I'm going to pay him according to the number of laughs he gets. Then you'd better watch it, boss. He's liable to live himself right into the upper brackets. (laughs) Listen, Alan couldn't ad-lib the word please if it was preceded by give me a package of Beeman's Pepsin chewing gum. (laughs) So I'm not worried about what he's like. Oh, Jack. What is it, Don? Well, uh, everyone's out on stage waiting for you. Oh, good, good. Has Fred Allen come in yet? Well, not yet. Oh, well, I'll be out in a minute. Oh, 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 boss! Uh, while you're rehearsing, do you want me to make out the payroll like I always do? Yes, Rochester, and on Don Wilson's check, deduct 50 cents. 50 cents? Yes, and on the stub, make a notation, deduction for DP. 
DP? What does that stand for? Drear Poussin. He'll understand. Well, I better get out on the stage. See you later, Rochester. Gee, that Los Angeles Open Golf Tournament sure was exciting. My legs are still sore from following Hogan and Sneed. I was silly to follow such good players. They never lose any balls. Now, fellas, before we try that number again, I want to make a few changes. First trumpet. In the third measure, change the F sharp to an A flat. Phil. Just a minute, Jackson. Uh, now, in the second sax, in that first measure following the coda, change the D flat to an E natural. Look, Now, Phil. tenor sax, clarinet, and flute, right after the andante, give me a little more pianissimo. Phil. Now, let's have it. One, two. <laughs> Exactly what I want. <laughs> Phil? Phil, what was that? Some enchanted evening. <laughs> Phil, that was some enchanted evening? Sure. And that's the way you're going to play it on my program? Certainly. Well, Phil, Phil. Yeah. If some enchanted evening you should meet a stranger, ask him for a job. <laughs> That was the worst. Wait a minute, Jackson. I forgot the most important change of all. Oh, I'm sorry. Joe, turn your trombone around. You're blowing in the wrong end. <laughs> I wondered when you noticed that he's been doing it since 1936. <laughs> Phil, if I were you, I'd worry less about the music and more. Jack, Jack, let's get on with the rehearsal. Well, we'll start when Alan gets here. Is Fred Allen going to be our guest? Certainly, Mary. I told you last week. I thought you were kidding. Getting Fred Allen is no surprise to me. What? I could see the handwriting on the wall. Dennis. You're in the middle of your season. You've got to start getting laughs, kid. <laughs> now, look. Some Sundays I'm ashamed to go home. <laughs> Wait a minute, Dennis. There's nothing for you to be ashamed of about my program. I happen to be one of the country's outstanding comedians. Some comedian. You couldn't ad-lib the word please if it was preceded by give me a package of Beeman's Peps and Chewing Gum. Dennis, Dennis, where'd you hear that? On Groucho Marx's program, Wednesday night. <laughs> oh, yes, it, it was pretty good, wasn't it? Yeah, I like the part where Groucho said Fred Allen is so weak he has to talk through his mouth. Dennis, was... shut up. <laughs> what a kid. Jack. What? I just look over the script, and from the jokes I've got, you must have stolen from Death of a Salesman. What? I haven't got one good gag in the whole show. Well, it's your own fault, Mary. I had a very funny routine in there about your sister, babe, and you made me take it out. Of course I did. The horrible things you make me say about her. About babe? Certainly. One week she's a model in a harness shop. Next week she's a hostess on a live bait barge. <laughs> and the following week she's a sewer inspector at Pismo Beach. <laughs> Well, what, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with that? 
People think she can't hold a job. <laughs> oh, well, then we won't tell any more jokes like that about Babe. And you can stop talking about her looks, too. Now, wait a minute, Mary. Even though it is your sister, let's face it. She never was exactly voted Miss America. No, but she came close. Close? Mr. America. <laughs> oh, yes. Gabby Hayes came in second, I remember. Anyway, Mary, if you object so strenuously to what we say about Babe, we'll leave it out of the... Well, script. say, Jack, it's getting kind of late. Can't we rehearse without Alan? No, we can't, Don. Well, say, Mr. Benny, as long as we have to wait, would you like to hear my song first? Well, yes, Dennis, you might have... Oh, wait a minute. That reminds me of something. Now, uh, go ahead, Dennis. Uh, sing your song, will you? Uh, Jack. What? What was that? Well, during our murder mystery last week, the quartet was supposed to sing that, and at one point they got it so mixed up that nothing came out. It was just awful. Oh, so you're making them sing it today, huh, Jack? Five hundred times. But they won't bother us. They have to stay in that closet until they finish. But, Jack, the four of them in such a small closet. Well, that's part of the punishment, Mary. They can't stand each other, you know. Well, I don't think they're crazy enough to sing that same thing five hundred times. You don't think so? Listen to this. You see? Now, Dennis, go ahead and sing your song. 500 times? No, only one. Suddenly, dear child, 
was very good, Dennis. And when you do it on the show, I'll say that was Dennis Day singing Happy Times from Danny Kaye's new picture, The Inspector General, starring Danny Kaye. The song was written by Mrs. Danny Kaye and sung in the picture by Mr. Danny Kaye. There, I guess that'll take care of the Christmas present I forgot to send them. <laughs> uh, now, kids, let's try and... Dennis, get away from that door. Jack, you've got to stop this. One of the fellows in the quartet look exhausted. Must be the tenor. They never do hold up. <laughs> but maybe I ought to take a look. They're all right, Mary. Are you sure? Certainly. I'll show you. Yes, sir. Hey! <laughs> See, they're fine. Now, look, kids, I've made up my mind. If Alan doesn't get here for rehearsal in the next ten minutes, I'm going to cancel him. I wonder where he can be. He hasn't any friends out here. Maybe. I don't know. Will it be anything else, Mr. Allen? Uh, yes, waiter. I'll have another cup of coffee. Before I took this job here at the Brown Derby, I was a waiter at Lindy's. Really? Now, how are things back in New York? Well, they're about the same, except we have a water shortage, you know. Oh, yeah, I've been reading about that. Did it affect you personally? Well, it didn't bother me much at first. But after several weeks, something told me to take a bath. (laughs) (laughs) Gee, what did you do? Well, every day I'd lunch at the automat. And while the nickel changer wasn't watching, I would slyly pilfer half a glass of water, which I would take home and pour into my bathtub. Yeah? Then on Tuesday evenings, I would visit my friends, and while they were listening to my jokes on Milton Berle's program, (laughs) I would siphon a little water out of their goldfish bowl. Uh-huh. Oh, I used many other ingenious methods of collecting moisture. When pigeons weren't looking, I would raise them up slowly and drop my handkerchief into their bird baths. <laughs> I'd, uh, I'd follow window washers through the Empire State Building to catch their drippings. <laughs> and I would purposely irritate little boys so they'd squirt their water pistols at them. <laughs> Well, finally, after much waiting and hard labor, I had collected four precious inches of aqua pura in my bathtub. And then you took your bath? Oh, no, I rented it out. I'm not working, you know. <laughs> See, that's right. Uh, how come you're not on the radio anymore? Well, you may have heard, overheard uh, gossip. You know, radio is, is highly competitive. And the program that used to be opposite me was a giveaway show. Now, I don't know how it happened, but on the last Sunday in June, they gave me away. (laughs) No. Yes. I was prize number seven. I came between a plastic zither and a year's supply of strong hot dog food. Mr. Allen, if you're through with radio, then you must be out to make a picture. No, no, I am not, my inquisitive little straight man. (laughs) I 
am... This is confidential, you know. I am here as a personal emissary of Mayor O'Dwyer to ask Jack Benny to come to our troubled city on March 15th. Why did they want Frank there on March the 15th? Because when Benny pays his income tax, his tears alone will fill every reservoir and... <laughs> Mr. Allen, aren't you supposed to be on Jack Benny's program today? Ah. <laughs> and how I hate it. Well, this is none of my business, but uh, how much is Benny going to pay you? Well, I don't know yet, but my lawyer filed suit against him two weeks ago. <laughs> well, wait a minute. You ain't even been on his program yet, and you started suing him two weeks ago? My friend, when you deal with Benny, it's always best to get a running start. <laughs> He's really that cheap? Cheap? Why, Benny is so tight that last summer when he was out on a dude ranch, he kept his money in a wildcat's mouth. <laughs> and he was snide enough to find a wildcat with tonsillitis so it couldn't swallow. <laughs> well, I'd, uh, I'd better get going. I, I have to go to that old man's rehearsal over there. Say, uh, which network is he lousing up now? <laughs> Oh, he's at CBS. It's just two blocks from here. Say, on second thought, you know, I think I'll let him stew a little while. Bring me another cup of coffee. Gee, I can't understand what's keeping Fred. Oh, Jack, take it easy. He'll be here any minute. Well, when we go to court, I'm certainly going to bring up about him being late. <laughs> oh, Rochester, will you run out and see if you can find Mr. Allen? Maybe he's at Lyman's or at the Derby. Somewhere. Yes, sir. What? Wrong door. <laughs> See, that Alan is certainly a thoughtless guy. He's been doing things like this to me since the first day I met him. Jack, I've been with you for so many years, and I never knew how you first met Fred Allen. Oh, it happened in Boston a long time ago. Well, tell me about it, Jack. All right, Don. It was many, many years ago when Vaudeville was at its height. I was the headliner at the Metropolitan Theater in Boston. One night after the supper show, I was sitting in my dressing room, resting from my seven encores. I was removing my makeup. Gosh, they were a wonderful audience tonight. They made me take seven bows. This makeup is hard to get off. Uh-oh. Gee, a gray hair. Imagine me getting gray. This is the first year I'm 39. <laughs> well, I'll just... Come in. Uh, Mr. Benny? Yes? Uh, Mr. Benny, my name is Fred Allen. Uh-huh. I'm appearing here at the uh, Metropolitan. Well, that's funny. I don't remember any Fred Allen on this bill. I'm in the opening act. Oh, I thought the opening act was Fink's Mules. I took my makeup off. <laughs> oh, so you're with Fink's Mules? Uh-huh. May I sit down? Yes, but not too close. <laughs> Now, what, uh, what can I do for you, young man? Well, Mr. Benny, I am a great admirer of yours, sir, and I want to be a smart, sophisticated comedian like you. Oh, then you're a comedian? Yes, I'm just mule delineating for the time being, I said. <laughs> I am really a juggler, but I want to give up juggling because you can't get any steady booking. Oh, I don't know. Now, my brother worked for a bank, juggled their books, and got 20 years. <laughs> You see, if you want to be a comedian, Alan, you better watch it. You see, you let that one get past you. 
Oh, it didn't get past me, Mr. Benny. I've been around mules so long, I didn't notice it. (laughs) Well, Mr. Allen, if you're a juggler, I hardly think you have the experience to become a great comedian. Oh, sir, I never hope to be as great as you are, sir. But I do think with a little perseverance and some polish, mark you, I might become another Maury Amsterdam. (laughs) Well, you should be able to get laughs, Alan. You're ugly enough. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. (laughs) Tell me, Mr. Benny, what do you think of this new entertainment medium that's just starting up, this thing called radio? Well, I've been giving it a lot of thought. In fact, I already have an idea for a radio program. You have? Yes. On my program each week, I'll visit a place called Benny's Boulevard, where I'll start knocking on doors and ask topical questions of four people. Four people? Yes. A southern senator, a rube who says howdy, bub, a Bronx housewife, and an Irishman. Gosh, what a novel idea for radio. You know, that might even replace the street singer. Yes. You'll have to excuse me now, Alan. I've got to get dressed for dinner. Well, goodbye, Mr. Benny. And thank you so much, sir, for your help. I will always treasure the memory of this meeting. Meeting the greatest comedian in the world, sir. I'm backing out, sir. Thank you. (laughs) And that, Don, is how I first met Fred Allen. And why I dislike him so much. Jack, you mean... Yes, he stole my radio idea and called it Allen's Alley. Gee, I wonder if Rochester has found him yet. Say, waiter, I'll have another cup. Oh, there you are, Mr. Allen. I've been looking all over for you. Oh, hello, Rochester. Say, I was just getting ready to go over to the studio. Well, let's hurry, Mr. Benny's awful upset. Come on, I'll show you the shortcut to CBS. Sure. You know, Rochester, I'm rather surprised to see that you're still Mr. Benny's valet. I thought you'd quit long ago. Oh, it ain't such a bad job. I get my three meals a day, and I don't work too hard, and I have a nice place to sleep. Well, I know, but what about money? Pardon? (laughs) Money? What what happens on payday? He gives me a whip and a chair and tells me to get it from the wildcat. After all these years, Rochester, you'd think Benny would change. But he's just as bad as when I first met him in Boston many years ago. I never did hear about how you two first met. Uh, would you tell me about it, Mr. Allen? Well, are you really interested, are you? Uh-huh. Well, I shall be glad to tell you, Rochester. Uh, before you start, we'll, we'll, we'll take this shortcut. We'll go through the parking lot at NBC, which leads to the back door of CBS. Uh, that way we can... Who was that? Bill Harris. <laughs> Now, Mr. Allen, tell me about how you first met Mr. Benny. Well, Rochester, it happened many, many years ago. I was headlining at the Metropolitan Theater in Boston. And one evening after the supper show, I was sitting in my dressing room removing my makeup. Oh, Gad, what a show. I'm all tired out from blowing kisses to the audience. Eleven encores before I finally begged off. Come in. Uh, Mr. Allen? Yes? Uh, My name is Jack Benny. Well, I'm glad you got here. It's the cold water faucet that's leaking. (laughs) No, no, 
I'm not the plumber. See, I'm appearing here on the vaudeville bill with you. Jack, Benny, Jack. Say, I, did, I didn't see your name on the program. Oh, I'm in the opening act. But the show opens with a Japanese flash act. Yamaguchi and Takamura. Gosh, they're wonderful. The way they lie on their backs and juggle that big barrel with their feet. I know. And inside of that barrel, me. <laughs> no. Oh, yes, Mr. Allen. While they're balancing that barrel and kicking it up in the air, I'm curled up inside with my violin, playing Ireland Must Be Heaven because my mother came from there. <laughs> what an inspired touch. I can just hear that music coming out through the bunghole. <laughs> so much for flattery. Now, what can I do? (laughs) What can I do for you, son? Mr. Allen, sir, you've got to help me. I want to be a great comedian like you. I want to make a lot of money. A lot of money. But, Benny, why knock yourself out to make a lot of money? You'll only spend it. (laughs) No, no, Mr. Allen. I save my money. Here, look. Say, that's a peculiar-looking wallet you have there. It's a baby wildcat. <laughs> it has a strep throat. <laughs> anyway, Mr. Allen, I want to be a great comedian like you. Well, if you're so anxious to earn big money, why don't you turn to radio? Radio? Yes, it's a gold mine. Say, I'm working on an idea for a program for myself. Now, my idea is this. I'll be the star, you see, and I'll have a valet, a very naive young boy singer... A girl to insult me, a drunken orchestra leader, and a fat announcer. (laughs) Gee, that sounds like a wonderful idea, Mr. Allen. And I hope you have a lot of luck with it. Goodbye. And that's how I first met your boss, Rochester. You mean... Yes, Rochester. Mr. Benny stole my radio idea, crawled out of his barrel, said goodbye to Yamaguchi and Takamura, crawled out through the bunghole... Became a big success on the air, sold himself to CBS for $2 million, while today, I am a bum. (laughs) How fickle fate can be. Well, here's the studio, Mr. Allen. Let's go in. No. No, Rochester. I can't go in. What? I can't do it, Rochester. I can't let Benny give me a job. I may be a derelict down and out, but I've still got my pride. But, Mr. Allen... No, I'm sorry, Rochester. I just can't do it. But, Mr. Allen, you haven't got any money. How are you going to live? Don't worry about me. I'll get along. Maps. Get your maps to the movie star home. <laughs> James Mason's, Ronald Coleman's, Mr. and Mrs. Gary Cooper, Mr. and Mrs. Robert Taylor. You can't tell me... That's the worst thing anybody ever did to me. I'll never forgive Fred for not showing up. Oh, Jack, stop complaining. You had a good program without him. I know, but how could he do a thing like that? All right. Don't walk so fast. I can't keep up with you. Okay. Hey, mister, would you like to buy a map to the movie star's homes? Don't you talk to me, stupid man. (laughs) Come on, Mary. Well, you might at least say hello to Portland. She's on the other corner. Oh, yeah. Hello, Portland. How are they going? 
Ladies and gentlemen, somewhere there's a boy. A boy who needs affection, advice, and guidance. But most of all, a boy needs a friend, a big brother. So why not you? Observe National Big Brother Week by volunteering your services now. Contact Big Brothers at Broad Street Station Building, Philadelphia 3, Pennsylvania. And be sure to hear Dennis Day in a day in the life of Dennis Day. Stay tuned for the Amos and Andy show, which follows immediately. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. From January the 15th, 1950, that was the Jack Benny show. The name of that episode was uh, when Jack, or How Jack and, uh, and Fred Allen First Met. Funny show, funny bit. A couple program notes on that one. Did you notice when Rochester and uh, Fred Allen were talking, uh, Fred Allen was talking about how game shows were going to affect radio and uh, be the end of radio. Well, it's a well-known fact that Stop the Music was a game show starring Burt Parks and Dennis James, and it was put on opposite the Fred Allen show. And that was pretty much the end of Fred Allen. And that, that was always a big bugaboo with him, that he just felt that radio should be much more sophisticated and more uh, intellectual than giveaway shows. The other thing that was kind of funny was uh, when they were walking to the studio and Rochester said, let's take this shortcut through the NBC parking lot over to CBS, to the back door. And all of a sudden you heard that go by. And Fred Allen said, what was that? And Rochester said, oh, that was just Phil Harris. Well, you might recall Phil Harris had a show at NBC, and he had a show, he did the Benny show at CBS. And oftentimes he would probably have to run across the lot. That was very common. You've probably heard a lot of stories about actors in Hollywood. Because of the close proximity to the studios, they would actually uh, be booked on shows that ran back-to-back on different networks. So you might do the Benny show from uh, 8 o'clock to 8.30 at CBS and have an appearance on another show at uh, NBC that started at 8.30 when Benny show ended. So you literally, these actors and actresses would literally run across the parking lot. Also, did you notice when Fred Allen was selling his maps to the star's home at the end there, the first star he mentioned was Ronald Coleman. That's another tip of the hat to... uh, to the Benny programming and the Benny writers sort of saluting their own uh, their own talent there, if you would. And then finally, Jack said at the beginning that uh, Rochester was to de- make a deduction from Don Wilson's paycheck because of a mistake he had made. And, and uh, Rochester asked, what was that? And he said, just put on the note, Drear Poussin. Well, what had happened is the previous week on the January 8th show, which we have played before, by the way. Don was supposed to be talking about Drew Pearson, who was a, a well-known uh, commentator, and uh, he instead called him Drear Poussin. And, of course, it got a huge laugh from the audience, and Jack had some fun with it. Well, if you go to jackbenny.org, which is a fan club site, they tell this story, and I thought it was kind of cute, that... On that same episode in the second half of the show, and apparently this story has been was told by Frank Nelson. You know, Frank Nelson, who's a regular on the Benny Show, the one that always goes, yes? Well, the writers called Nelson up to the booth during the first half of the show, and they were plotting something here, and they wanted to include him in on it. 
He was reluctant at first because he said that the show, the Benny show, always stuck to the script. But this is what the writers wanted. In the second half of the show, Nelson was to play a doorman. And Benny was to walk up to him and say, are you the doorman? The line as it was scripted was, well, I'm not Nelson Eddy. And I guess the joke was that since he was wearing a doorman's uniform, Nelson Eddy often dressed as a Mountie. Well, according to uh, Nelson's recollection, Benny was never happy with that line, but they couldn't come up with something better, so they just went with it anyway. What the writers wanted and what Frank Nelson actually did is when Jack Benny approached him in the second half of the show and said, are you the doorman? (laughs) Nelson replied, well, I'm not Drear Poosin. Let me just read this from the website. It says, uh, when he gave his edited reply, Jack was taken completely by surprise and literally fell on the stage laughing. He struggled to pull himself up on the curtain at the side of the stage as the audience howled. Finally, Jack regained his composure and went on with the skit. It's interesting. If you go into that website, it's jackbinney.org, and you look this up, This um, it he has a list of the longest laughs of all the different skits that were done on the Benny Show. And, you know, it's kind of been a well, sort of a legend that the longest laugh was for the line, uh, your money or your life. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking. Uh, But as you'll see, if you go into that site, that that didn't even come close. There was some laughs that were three times as long. We'll, We'll save that for another week. The Jack Benny Show, one of our favorites here on Boomer Boulevard. Now. You know that music. Mm. Time for gun smoke, everybody. Time to go back to the old west. Walk down the streets of Dodge City, Kansas in the 1870s with Matt Dillon, Chester, Doc, and Kitty, and the whole gang. And we've got a good episode tonight. In fact, if uh, you are one of the people that have signed up for our mailing list at theoldtimeradioshow.com, 
you probably downloaded the Gunsmoke scripts and this is one of the scripts that we have in that package. And this is an interesting episode because it's one of the few episodes of Gunsmoke I recall that there's no writing credit. Uh, it says L&M Filters presents Gunsmoke, the Army Trial is the name of this, uh, this episode. And uh, it says as broadcast. This was originally broadcast on June the 18th, 1955 and then rebroadcast on June 25th, 1955. It was directed by... Now, I'm just going to read you some of the stuff on the script here. This, this is why I tell you these things are fun. Directed by uh, Norman MacDonald. The associate director was Frank Paris. The engineer was Robert Chadwick. Sound was Tom Hanley and Bill James. Music, Rex Corey. Announcer, George Walsh. And, of course, the cast was uh, William Conrad, Parley Bear, Howard McNear, Georgia Ellis. Lawrence Dopkin plays Jed. Vivi Janice, who we're going to talk about a little bit at the end of the show, plays Della. Harry Bartell plays uh, LT, and Jim Nusser plays uh, Moss. LT's the lieutenant, because this is about a deserter. Pretty good, pretty good episode. Good acting, especially by Vivi Janice. So, here you go, from um, June 25th, 1955, and the name of this episode is Army Trial. Gunsmoke, brought to you by L&M Filters. This is it. L&M is best, stands out from all the rest. Around Dodge City and in the territory on West, there's just one way to handle the killers and the spoilers, and that's with a U.S. Marshal and the smell of Gunsmoke. Gunsmoke, starring William Conrad, the transcribed story of the violence that moved west with young America, and the story of a man who moved with it. I'm that man, Matt Dillon, United States Marshal, the first man they look for and the last they want to meet. It's a chancy job, and it makes a man watchful and a little lonely. Why don't you watch where you're putting your feet, you jug-headed old fool? Oh, what's the matter, Chester? Oh, this dang horse has tromped in every prairie dog hole since we left Cimarron. He'll break his leg yet. Well, you should have brought your mare. That horse is getting too old. Maybe his eyes are going bad. My gracious, he ain't gone 12 yet. He's just pure ornery, that's all. You know, you've grumbled about that horse ever since you first got him. Why don't you sell it? They ain't nobody in heaven. Besides, I kind of like the old goat. <laughs> You know, I don't think there's a man in the world with as many problems as you have. 
Well, I don't know that I have too many problems, Mr. Dillon. For that matter, I don't really have none. It, it, it's just that my nerves are uh, all uh, all right. up. And all right, Chester. Never mind. Never mind. Never mind. Yes, sir. Hey, Mr. Dillon, look yonder. It's a wagon, ain't it, over near that dry wash? Uh, yeah, it is. That's a mighty poor place to make camp. Uh, nobody would make camp in the middle of the day, and not unless there were some trees. Well, then why'd they stop? Some kind of trouble, maybe, huh? I uh, will swing around that way and find out. Okay. Looks like one of them big Studebaker wagons, don't it? Uh-huh. Could be their nesters. I don't think so. If they were, they'd likely be trailing some stock. It could be their awful poor nesters. No, they got trouble right enough. Now, you see, they lost a wheel. By golly, they sure have. Yeah, come on. We'll see if they need help, huh? It's a man and woman, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. Hello. Hello. My name's Dillon. Seen you coming. The way he was holding that rifle, you must have thought we were Cheyenne. What happened to your wagon, mister? Cotter pin fell out. Let the wheel drop off. Uh-huh. You got anybody with you? Only my woman here. I'll reset no wheels. No job for a woman. We can manage. That's a heavy job for one man. We'll give you a hand. He told you. We don't want no help. Uh, you're mighty unsociable for people with a busted wagon. Now, look, you? you mister. It's our trouble, and we'll take care of it. There ain't no need for you to bother yourself. You're from around Dodge, aren't you? Maybe. What's wrong with that? Not nothing, maybe. You, uh... You ever been in the Army, mister? No. You know, I've been trying to place you ever since we rode up. We're just headed west to Homestead. A week or so back, an officer from Fort Dodge gave me a description that uh, fits you mighty close. I don't know nothing about Fort Dodge. Could be your name is Cook and you were stationed there with a 26 Cavalry. Mister, you got it all wrong. I don't think so. I'm putting you under civil arrest, Cook, for desertion. Shoot him, Jed. Shoot him. You lift that rifle one inch, Cook, and I'll put a bullet on you. All right, Chester. Yes, sir. Go get his rifle. Yes, sir. Jed. You stand back. I'll blow a hole in you. Get it, Chester. Give me that. You fool, Jed. I told you he was Marshal Dillon when I seen him riding up here. I heard you. Then why don't you shoot him? I couldn't do that, Dylan. Maybe you couldn't. But I sure could. All the way back to Dodge, Chester and I rode alongside the wagon while Jed and Della sat on the box staring down and talking quietly to each other. It was well past sundown by the time we found a place for Della to stay and put the wagon up at Moss Grimmick's stable. Later, I rode out to Fort Dodge with Jed Cook. It was nearly midnight by the time I turned him over to the officer of the day and signed the papers connected with the civil arrest of a soldier. Next morning, I was eating breakfast at Delmonico's when Kitty came in. Well, you're up early, Max. <laughs> Hello, Kitty. Hello. Why not you sit down? Now, how about some coffee, huh? Yeah, thanks. 
Where's Chester? Don't tell me he's not hungry. No, he's down at Moss Grimmick's. The stable? What for? Well, he went down to give Moss some instructions about a wagon we brought in last night. A wagon? Yeah. Belonged to a man and a woman we picked up about 20 miles outside of Dodge yesterday. Hmm? Deserter. Name's Jed Cook. Jed? Uh, yeah. Do you know him? Well, sure I know him. Him and Della Masters both. They've been going to get married ever since Jed got transferred out here to the fort. Well, they'll have to wait a while now. A deserter, huh? What'll the army do to him, Matt? Yeah, the war was still on, they'd shoot him. Oh, Matt. Well, that's the way the army operates. They both seemed real nice. Jed came into town every chance he got. Never caused any fuss, just had a few drinks and spent the rest of his leave with Della. They've been planning awful hard and getting married. She especially, I think, Matt. Uh-oh. Marshal, I want to know what they're going to do with Jed. Well, uh, he'll be court-martialed, Della. And then what? And then they will sentence him. A rotten, stinking army. He fought all through the war and then had eight years of moving around. Pennsylvania, the Dakotas, Missouri, and now out here. A soldier can't pick his post, Della. What do they need Jed for? He's just another man. The army's got lots of men. Maybe they don't see it that way. The army ain't going to keep him. No matter what they say, they ain't going to keep him. He'll just bust out and we'll get married like we planned. And we'll still get to Colorado. You'll see, Marshal. Now, look, Della, why don't you come? You keep me? out of this, Kitty. I'll tell you something else, Marshal. There ain't nobody going to find us once he gets loose. We got a place we'll meet and he'll wait there for me. He'll wait no matter how long before I get there. Della, Jed's an army sergeant. He deserted and he's got to be tried. Now, you know that. I don't know nothing of the sort. He knew what the consequences might be when he decided to desert... He just didn't plan on getting caught, that's all. You're the one who arrested him, Marshal. You're the one who caused all this trouble, and don't you forget it. Because I sure ain't going to. There's a woman who speaks her mind. Yeah. Well, she can't seem to get it through her head that the army runs by its rules, not hers. Since the first time I met her... All she's talked about is her and Jed. The place they're going to have. The family. Well, there isn't much she can do about it now. Matt, you ever had a woman who loved you fight for you? Uh, no. It'd surprise you. They can be pretty fierce. Yeah, I guess. Well, what are you going to do now? Nothing. Just wait till the court-martial. They said they'd want me to testify out there. And after that? And then I'm shut of the whole business. I wouldn't be too sure, Matt. A week later, Jed Cook was brought before a special court-martial at Fort Dodge, and I went out to testify as the arresting civil officer. I said my piece and left, somehow feeling a little sorry for him. From what I'd heard, he'd been a mighty good soldier before he deserted and that's all I knew about it until one evening after supper, Doc and I were walking back towards my office. Mr. Dillon! Mr. Dillon! 
Oh, for heaven's sake. When in the world is Chester going to learn there's no use shouting like that? Well, perhaps it's important, Doc. Oh, important? It can't always be important. Well, maybe Chester doesn't believe that. Hey, I've been looking all over for you, Mr. Dillon. Oh, what for? It's uh, Lieutenant Dustman from out to Fort Dodge. He's waiting over at the office. Now, did he say what he wanted? No, sir. I asked, could I help? But he said he'd talk to you. Okay, Chester. Well, I'll leave you here, Matt. I think a little rye whiskey would kind of... Soothe my innards after that supper. So I'll see you later, Matt. Chester. All right, Bye, Doc. Doc. Good night. What do you suppose that Lieutenant Dustman does want, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, maybe he thinks that you want back in the Army, Chester. Me? Back in the Army? Anybody who thinks like that just got two bricks less than a load. Why, Mike? Back in the <laughs> Army? All right. Oh, no, okay, Chester. Oh, man. All right. Ah, Lieutenant Dustman. Hello, Marshal. Uh, Chester here says you want to see me. Yes, I do. First, let me show you this. Oh, what is it? Read it. Uh, before a special court-martial, which convened at Fort Dodge, Kansas. Uh, so forth, so forth, so forth, so forth. A uh, uh, violation of the 58th Article of War, specification in that Sergeant Jedediah Cook, Troop A, 26 Cavalry, did at Fort Dodge on or about the 6th day of March, desert the forces of the United States... I don't need to read this. I know the verdict. Marshal, the court found him guilty of the charge and the specification. He was sentenced to two years at hard labor with forfeiture of all pay and allowances due him. Well? Following the court, Marshal, I was put in charge of the detail, taking him to Fort Leavenworth. The second night out, he tricked one of the guards and escaped. Oh. We couldn't pick up his trail, but I believe he circled back to Dodge. Well, if a man had a few silver dollars and wanted to hide here, it wouldn't be too hard. That's why I've come to you. You get more cooperation from the townspeople than the army can. And I want this man back where he belongs. I'll search every house in this town to get him there. Uh Uh-huh. How many troopers are with you? About 20. All right, Lieutenant. I'll do what I can to help you, but I want those soldiers out of town. That's ridiculous, Marshal. I won't pull them out until we find Cook. Lieutenant, no man is going to break and run if there are soldiers posted around town. And anyway, before the week was out, they'd be shooting down some citizen by mistake. Now, look here, Marshal. I don't want 20 men all looking for a target. Now, do you want my help or not? Yes, I do. All right, then get your men back to the garrison. I'll find Cook for you, if he's here. When you do, Marshal, I want him turned over to me. If I find Cook, he'll be turned over to the commanding officer at the fort. Good night, Lieutenant. Good night. Just one thing. Yeah. Cook knows what's in store for him if he's caught now. He won't be taken easily. A fellow like that just makes you wonder how either side won the war, don't he? Chester. Yes, sir. I'm going over to talk with Della Masters. You uh, better stay here. What in the world are you going to talk to her for? She just ain't about to tell you where Jed's at, even if she knows. Maybe not. But if she's sensible, she can make things a lot easier for him. I'll see you later. Dillon. Open the door, Dillon. I don't want to talk to you, Marshal. You're going to. What do you want? 
A couple of nights ago, Jed escaped from the soldiers who were taking him to Fort Leavenworth. Has he been here? Maybe he has. Now, look, Della, I got Lieutenant Dustman to agree to take his troopers out of the town, to take them back to the garrison. What difference does that make to me? It means that Jed could give himself up. Jed ain't going to give himself up to nobody. If Jed surrenders himself, the court won't be as hard on him as if the army picks him up somewhere later. Look what they did to him before. Sent him off for two years hard Tell labor. Tell don't you understand I'm trying to help you? We don't need no help. Sooner or later, Jed's going to get caught. You can't run away forever. Once we get out into Colorado Territory, they won't nobody find us. Della, when will you get it through your head that you can't fight the whole United States Army? Jed's done his share of soldiering. More than his share. We've been waiting to get married two, three years now, and I don't aim to wait no longer. Why are you sticking your nose in this anyway, Marshal? You ain't the Army. I'm paid by the government, Della. It's part of my job. Well, I'll tell you something, Marshal. You come sniffing around me and Jed, I'll shoot you. That's uh, pretty foolish talk. No, it ain't. I planned it out how me and Jed are going to meet and where, and ain't nobody going to interfere. This is all your idea, wasn't it? What? His deserting. What if it was? I ain't going to wait forever. You're making a mistake, Della. Not the way I see it. I just want my man and the life that goes with it. Besides, I know what's best for Jed and me. Maybe. We'll see. Now, Della. What? Sooner or later, I'm going to find Jed. I just hope nobody gets hurt. still down the stable, Mr. Dillon. She ain't come near it, save once or twice, just to get some things out of it. Well, keep on watching, Chester. She'll leave one day soon. We'll just follow her to where that fellow cook is, huh? Yeah. Well, that don't sound too hard to no, do. it shouldn't be. Mm. Marshal. Oh, hello, Moss. Hello, Moss. Something's wrong, Marshal. Well, what's that? You know that big Studebaker wagon Miss Dell's down to my place? Yeah, what about it? It's empty. Empty? All her equipment. She took it all out. Well, that don't matter, Moss. You can't get no horse without that wagon. Just a minute, Chester. Go on, Moss. Well, I don't often have occasion to walk out back near where that wagon is. I just kind of spelled Chester keeping an eye on her like you told me. But the day after he left, I had to go back for some barrel staves. And that's the first time I looked at it, close like. Moss, when was the last time that you saw Della? Two nights ago. She was out back in a little spring wagon. Said she'd come by for some blankets out the Studebaker. And you say that she'd been by a couple of times before that, huh? Yes, sir. Well, she's outsmarted us. What do you mean, Mr. Dillon? We missed her. She got our stuff and headed out. You better get our horses saddled, Chester. Yes, sir. We'll swing by our rooming house to make sure she's gone before we try to pick up her trail. Now, get moving. Twenty minutes later, we checked the room where Della lived, and the landlady said that she left two days before. She didn't know where. I knew now that my only chance to find Jed Cook was to track Della the best I could. She couldn't travel fast driving a spring wagon cross-country, but tracking was still a chore. 
And the next evening about sundown, I realized that we'd lost her. What are we going to do now, Mr. Dillon? Well, there's no use trying to track her any farther tonight, Chester. We'll pick up our trail in the morning. Yes, sir. We, uh, we'll camp in that cottonwood grove up ahead there, huh? If she should pass near here, why, she won't see her horses. Hey, Mr. Dillon? Yeah, what? Don't it look like there's a hut of some kind in them trees? It sure does. You suppose this is where that Jed is hiding out? That's a likely place. And Della was traveling in this direction. You mean we beat her here? Uh, maybe. She could have known we were following her and dropped off in one of those dry washes to lose us. We was pretty lucky then. Uh, we don't know he is here, though, Justin. Yeah. No, sir. All right, we better pull up. We'll go in from here on foot. Yes, sir. a slip like that. It's no... Oh, my gracious. Mr. Dillman, look. Yeah, I see it, Justin. Well, I guess Jed Cook won't go back for trial now. No. You reckon it was Indians done that to him? Yeah. He's been tortured. He sure didn't have much chance. All by himself, did he? No, not much. Mm -hmm. Poor fellow. Hold it, Justin. There's somebody over there. It's Della, Mr. Dillon. Yeah. It was Injuns, Marshal. They heard him. It hurt him real bad. But he was still alive when I got here four or five hours ago. He was lying right there where he is now. Didn't want nothing. Not even water. Except for me to talk to him. By Colorado. Our farm and such like. Della, I... Then... After he died... I had a long time alone here. Time to do some thinking. I got things figured straight now. Too bad it took this to do it. Yeah. But it wouldn't have worked the other way. The way I had it planned. I know that now. He only had another year to go. And then he'd have got discharged. And we could have gone to Colorado like we wanted. <laughs> I loved him so much, I guess I just couldn't wait. Women are like that sometimes. Yeah. Well, uh, what can we do now, Della, to help you? Oh, I... 
buried Jed right here. Right here. He'd like that. It's about as far west as he'll ever get. Now... Now our star, William Conrad. Because so many of you took the time and the trouble to write to Liggett and Myers, Gunsmoke will continue to be heard right through the summer months. The time this summer, starting Saturday, July 2nd, 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Be sure and check your local radio listings for the earlier time on your station. Gunsmoke, produced and directed by Norman McDonald, stars William Conrad as Matt Dillon, U.S. Marshal. The special music for Gunsmoke was composed and conducted by Rex Corey. Sound patterns by Tom Hanley and Bill James. Featured in the cast were Vivi Janis, Lawrence Dobkin, Harry Bartell, and Jim Nusser. Harley Bear is Chester, Howard McNear is Doc, and Georgia Ellis is Kitty. Remember, as William Conrad told you, starting Saturday, July 2nd, Gunsmoke will be heard specially transcribed for L&M filters at 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Check your local radio listings for Gunsmoke's earlier time on your station. I'm just looking at this script here again, and it says at the top that this was to play June 20, excuse me, June 18th, 1955, from 3.30 p.m. to 4 p.m. Pacific Daylight Time, and then Saturday, June 25th, 1955, from 9.30 to 9.59 and 30 seconds Pacific Daylight Time. If you have the script, go get it. Look at this. And if you don't have it, you're going to the oldtimeradioshow.com. That's my site, theoldtimeradioshow.com. Go to uh, the sign up there for the mailing list. It doesn't cost anything. 
And uh, when you join our mailing list, we immediately give you the download link where you can download these. It's like 52 or 48 scripts or something like that. Gunsmoke scripts. So these are the original scripts. They're really cool. You can see that these were typewritten. And uh, we have photostat copies, of course. But these were actually scripts that people held in their hands while the show was being broadcast. These aren't transcriptions that somebody made listening to the show years later. Oh, no, no, no. No, no. The, these were actually used in a... Uh, I, I believe they were introduced as evidence in a court case against Liggett and Myers, but I may be wrong about that. Uh, but I think that's one of the reasons they were preserved. But you can see that there was typos and typeovers and uh, sometimes handwritten corrections made in the margins or on the script. Were there any interesting notes on this one? Hang on. I'm just going to check here real fast. Okay. Remember at the beginning when Matt says, you know, I don't think there's a man in the world with as many problems as you have. And Chester says, well, I don't know as I have too many problems, Mr. Dillon. For that matter, I don't really have none. Chester was going to say, maybe if I had his shoes pulled off, he could walk a little bit better. So now you know something that most people that listened to this show over the years didn't know, that they had extra lines in there. Just things like that makes it a lot of fun. All right, I was going to talk a little bit about Vivi Janis. Vivi Janis was born on uh, May 29, 1911 in Nebraska. She was known for many, many roles. She was married to Robert Cummings, which is one of the things I found notable because Robert Cummings was a big television star. Plus, prior to television, he was a movie star, but baby boomers mostly remember him from television for Love That Bob and I even remember him from the show before Love That Bob, which was the old Bob Cummings show. Of course, he made many, many movies. From what I gather, they met on a movie set back in 1934. But most of the credits I have for her are uh, television credits from the earliest, earliest days of television. Well, let me just let me just go over some of these. And this goes all the way back to 1949, Your Witness. Don't remember that show. Kansas City Confidential, 99 River Street, 1953, Four Star Playhouse. Death Valley Days, that's the first one I really remember watching when I was a kid. I Led Three Lives, I remember that one, of course. I Love Lucy, she had appearances on the Loretta Young Show. Big Town, I Married Joan, remember that with Joan Davis and Jim Backus. Climax, uh, City Detective, don't remember that show. Treasury Men in Action, I don't remember that show. She was on a number of episodes of uh, George Burns and Gracie Allen show. The Man Behind the Badge, multiple episodes of Dragnet. In fact, she had a recurring role on that as Policewoman Betty Stone. She was on uh, the TV episodes of uh, Gangbusters. She was in one episode of Highway Patrol. Remember that? 10-4, 10-4, 10-4. With Broderick Crawford. Crawford. Uh, The Ford Television Theater. And then she was in uh, The Phantom from 10,000 Leagues. I remember that. It was one of the first monster movies I went to when I was about nine years old. And it was the first time I was really disappointed by... A monster movie. So my first one, and my also my first disappointment, to be followed by many, many more 
uh, Hollywood stunt actors in rubber suits. Let me see. You are there. Remember that on CBS. It's a great life. Uh, she had a recurring role on that. Well, anyway, you get the idea. She was just on all kinds of television shows back through the 50s and all the way into, what are some of the latest ones? She was on a Barnaby Jones, uh, Rockford Files, Barney Miller. So a number of the shows from the 70s. She left us in 1988. She died at the age of 77 in Los Angeles. But Vivi Janice, I thought she was really good in that role tonight. And you might wonder, well, did I ever see her? If you Google her, it's J-A-N-I-S-S, Janice, uh, and pull up images, Google images, and you will recognize Vivi Janice. By the way, the uh, role she played tonight in Gunsmoke was uh, as Della. And I once knew a Della, and she ran off with a dealer and a dog named Jake and a cat named, uh, what was that cat's name? Oh, yeah, Kalamazoo. It was Della and a dealer and a dog named Jake and a cat named Kalamazoo. Left the city in a pickup truck, gonna make some dreams come true. It rolled out west with the wild sunsets in the coyote base of the moon. Della and the dealer and a dog named Jake and a cat named Kalamazoo. That cat to talk Said a mumbling word. Down Tucson Way, there's a small cafe where they play a little cowboy tune. And the guitar picker was a friend of mine by the name of Randy Boone. Yeah, Randy played her a sweet love song, and Bella got a fire in her eyes. The dealer had a knife, and the dog had a gun, and the cat had a shot of rice. And mean, and he was jealous of the fire in her eyes. He snorted his coat through a century note, and he swore that Boone would die. And the stage was set when the lights went out. There was death in Tucson town. Two shadows ran for the far back door, and one stayed on the ground. If that cat could talk, what tales he tell about death and the Truck, 
gonna make some dreams come true Yeah, yeah, yeah If that cat could talk, what tale he tell About Bell and the dealer and the dog as well But the cat was cool and he never said a mumble in That's going to kick things in the head for another week. Don't despair. We'll be back in two weeks if we can get through this cold snap here and uh, we don't shoot ourselves. We'll, we'll be back in two weeks and we'll have a whole new lineup of shows. And we'll have some fun and we'll talk about neat stuff. All right, everybody, that's it. See you in two weeks. This is Bob Bro. I am so glad you stopped by and I am so glad you met me.